first, we're taking a look at CERB, the emergency relief benefit that was brought out to very close to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, meant to help people who found themselves suddenly laid off without work, unable to perhaps pay the rent, pay the mortgage, pay any of the bills. But is the CERB going to the right place? Well, let's bring in Jason Clements. He's the executive vice president at the Fraser Institute and has written about this and is bringing out some new research on this. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so when we think of the CERB, we think of people who have been laid off, who have lost their jobs. For the most part, I think uh, people are thinking about full-time employees uh, and such. But there is a certain number of people, and I've even heard anecdotally from friends, uh, a younger demographic that is also eligible, at least eligible, and in some cases likely getting this money. No, that's right. I mean, one of the things, uh, in fact, the main thing that we looked at in the study we released this morning was the number of and then the potential cost of dependent children, which is important. So they're not the head of a household or a spouse. They are deemed to be dependent. So they're living in a household with at least one parent who's working um, between the ages of 15 and 24 who are eligible for CERB, which means they made at least $5,000 in 2019 or the previous uh, 12 months. And so what we then looked at is to narrow the income. So we wanted to look at those individual Canadians earning between five and 12,000, which is really important because that group will be better off underserved. In other words, their average monthly income will increase uh, quite substantially, at least potentially. And then we also looked at those earning between 12 and 24,000. And all of them are in households with at least $100,000 in income. Um, And what we found is there's almost a million Canadians that fit those criteria. And the potential cost with respect to CERB is almost $12 billion. Um, It's certainly hard to look at this particular group um, and say that this is a group in high need of assistance. Given that there are other um, individual Canadians, particularly single-parent households, or even dual-income households where both parents have been laid off, um, who, quite frankly, are probably not getting the assistance they need. So, again, one of the insights from our analysis is that, yet again, we've got a federal program that is really struggling uh, to target assistance to those who need it most. And when you're looking at, though, though, when you talk about younger Canadians in those groups that you just mentioned that would be eligible, they would still have to be laid off, wouldn't they, though? Or then they would have to have lost their jobs and lost that income. That's right. That's right. So these are individuals who, quote unquote, have been adversely affected by the COVID recession. Now, under CERB, as your listeners might know, you are able to earn up to $1,000 a month. Uh, and in fact, there's increasing evidence Uh, The Canadian Federation of Independent Business had a survey out this morning, actually, showing that, in fact, we are having problems getting workers back to work because they're basically uh, preferring to be on CERB and have a limited number of hours, which I think is quite natural given the incentives that that people are facing when you can get $2,000 a month and you can earn another $1,000. Uh, then again, we do have a number of Canadians that are choosing not to work. Now, the key on this group, though, again, is they only made between 5000 and 12000 in 2019, and they are a dependent child, and most of them are in school. 
And so in that scenario, because I've heard that from people as well, the kids that are or not kids, young adults who are in university, but many are in that group that made more than $5,000 last year through part-time work, would, don't, aren't taking the student benefit. They're, they're qualifying, and if they choose to, are taking the CERB. So do you think, was that an oversight or was that a misstep as far as how the CERB is being offered? Yeah, absolutely. I, early on, we raised concerns about the federal government's decision to, instead of relying on EI, the, the Employment Insurance Program, which is an established program with established systems and process, instead, what they did was create multiple new programs. And in the case of CERB, it was created in about a week and a half. It's a, it was originally a $40 billion program. Um, and, and as anybody can imagine, to, to create an entirely new program in a week and a half that's going to service roughly 8 million Canadians is, is just an almost impossible task. And so the problem then is you have to make a choice between either expediency or being more diligent and prudent and careful in terms of how we're using taxpayer money. And I think at every turn, the evidence is that the federal government has chosen expediency rather than being more prudent and careful with public funds. And, and sorry, just to give you an example, the federal government could have easily have said on CERB, if you are a dependent child, we need to know whether both parents or a single parent are still working and what current household income is. Those two simple questions would have allowed CERB to be much better targeted to those families that are in gen. And again, there are unfortunately many families in genuine need, um, but I think those two simple criteria would have allowed us to, to much better target assistance to those in need. And when you talk about though somebody being a dependent child, does that have to mean that they live in the same household? Because there would be some young people who are paying their own way through university who need that income, even though for many people it might not seem like a lot, but who depend on that, who have lost that income, who would say, I'm just as worthy of this federal funding, of this federal help as anybody else. No, so they in that circumstance, they would have to be in the household with the family because uh, the census definition would be that there's a head of the family, there's a spouse, and then there's a dependent child. Now, many, many of those families don't have a spouse, and it's just a, a head of a household with children. But the group that we looked at were dependent children, meaning that they, they are in that family unit. And even if, does it fall then to the parents as well or the head of the household? Because just because the household is making a hundred grand doesn't mean that that person is paying the tuition or paying the living expenses of that child. Right. So that's really why the income level that we're looking at is important. So in terms of the income they got last year, CERB would make them better off. Now, what it doesn't take into account because we, to be blunt, we don't have the data is the degree to which they're taking student loans to get through school if they're in school or they're in high school. Cause remember the age group is 15 to 24. Right. So we are capturing some high school students. And just to, to clarify too, the $12 billion number, the, the eligible to collect 12 billion, do we have any way of knowing how many young people in that scenario have actually collected? No, unfortunately, this is yet another gap in the reporting of data from the federal government. Uh, my hope is that the Auditor General is going to look at these programs next year so that we get some historical uh, evidence and experience about what happens when you have this kind of a program with very limited criteria 
Um, is there abuse? Is there fraud? Is I mean, certainly I think what we've identified is there's the potential for some misallocation to individuals who are not, I, I, or I think at least their, their need is questionable, while at the same time there are others who are clearly in need and, and are not getting the kind of assistance that they need right now. All right. Uh, Jason, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, as you heard in the news, in June of this year, there were 175 suspected illicit drug toxicity deaths. That is a 130% increase over the number of deaths seen in June of 2019 and an increase in the number of deaths seen in May. And as you recall, we were talking about this in May, May also being a record-breaking month. Well, joining me on the line to look at these numbers is Lisa LaPointe, BC's chief coroner. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Gail. Thanks for having me. Uh, the numbers, unfortunately, we ta- we're talking again about a record-breaking number of suspected drug overdose deaths. What is it, do you think, that's, that's getting us back or see- seeing getting BC to the point of seeing these numbers? Yeah, so it's absolutely tragic. As you point out, 175 people died of illicit drug toxicity in June, and that's the highest number that this province has ever seen in terms of substance-related deaths. We believe it's a combination of of a few things. Uh, The pandemic, of course, has seen people uh, physically isolating, uh, more people staying home, less access to some of the resources that were available to support those using substances, so uh, safe consumption site or overdose prevention site, uh, uh, more simple access to naloxone, and then people using alone, which has always been one of the most significant risks because we know that if somebody experiences a fentanyl overdose, the sooner they can get immediate medical help, the better in terms of recovery. And that was one of the numbers released today also by your office. So in 2020, 85% of the drug overdoses occurring inside private residences or other other places. But again, no deaths reported at any of the supervised consumption sites. That's right. We've yet to see a death at one of those sites, thankfully, and there have been overdoses, but that's the, you know, that's the whole reason that they exist, so that if somebody uses their substance and experiences the effects of overdose, then there's somebody there who can immediately call for medical help. And, um, you know, that's, that's the key, is immediate medical help if somebody's experiencing an opioid overdose. We're also seeing in the province, and in a variety of places in the province, a higher levels of fentanyl in the postmortem toxicology. So the concentration of fentanyl uh, now in the illicit supply seems much more uh, dangerous. Uh, I was looking at that. So you're seeing uh, the higher, a high number of, of fentanyl, but then carfentanil, the numbers of that or the percentage of that has gone down. So does that suggest that the drug supply has changed? Well, that's, you know, that is a possibility. It's very challenging because these are illicit channels, so we don't know exactly. But, you know, it certainly suggests to us, and a and number of um, those in this world have suggested that the traditional drug supplies have been disrupted with international travel um, closed and, and many fewer routes for substances to come in. Local suppliers have popped up. Apparently, there is no shortage of fentanyl available in communities, but the challenge, of course, is that this is a substance that's made in um, somebody's kitchen lab or basement lab, and there's no quality control. So playing with the chemical and one or two grains could be the difference between life or death, honestly. 
Vancouver, Surrey, and Victoria were the areas that have seen the highest number of drug overdose deaths this year. And we're still seeing that men account for the majority in 80% of the deaths in 2020. Any surprise in those numbers? No, in fact, um, all, all, ever since 2015, when we've been looking at this data more closely, men have far outweighed women in terms of representation in the uh, fatalities. And Vancouver, Surrey, and Victoria have continually been amongst the top uh, communities where deaths are occurring. Um, again, is that supply, the supply route? We don't know. With more men... M- in, in many of our categories of accidental death, men are overrepresented, and it may just be that um, men take more risks in some categories and or are more likely to use a loan uh, because, of, as I said, that's certainly one of the biggest risk factors is using a loan. And we're also seeing the numbers or the numbers released today showing in the, the northern parts of B.C. What does it look like? Is it similar in other parts of the province? It's patchy, and it's interesting. We will see reported over a weekend or three or four days a number of deaths in one community, and that seems to be really linked to supply. So a supply has come into a community, it's particularly toxic, and we'll see several people dying within the space of a few days. And then it's also related to what services are available. So is naloxone readily available? Is there an overdose prevention site where people can use their substance more safely um, you know, that really makes a difference. And and again, whether or not people are using a loan. So it's a combination of things. We certainly know, as I I said, using a loan um, is is extremely dangerous. And so we encourage people to use in the presence of somebody who will call 911. And the other thing we've noticed is we will often hear from those who may have been present when somebody died that they heard loud snoring. Well, he was snoring loudly and I just assumed he was asleep. And that is often a sign that somebody is actually experiencing overdose. Their their respiratory system is shutting down. They're trying to drag in air. And that loud snoring is a common history that we hear. So, you know, we, we want to encourage people if they're with someone who's used substances and they hear that loud snoring and it's it's um, something not common for that person, call 911 immediately because they may be, in fact, dying of an overdose. Uh, are you fearful that we're going to continue and as the pandemic continues, here we are two months of record-breaking numbers that we're going to be having the same conversation next month and the month after that? I'm fearful that we're going to be having this conversation for a long time. So this um, public health emergency is entering areas in its fifth year. And it's going to need a whole rewiring of the country's approach to substance use. So for so long, it was grounded in punishment and it was a crime and people were arrested and people were jailed. And the the tremendous repercussions from this, what we now know, is a medical issue. And so the shift from treating this as a... um, uh, a law enforcement issue, uh, something that requires punishment, to a treatment issue, something that re- requires where people require support. It, it, it's a tremendous philosophical shift, and the the um, the change will go from from jails and uh, police law enforcement to recovery treatment safe supply. That shift is happening now, um, but it needs to happen much more significantly because we've seen over well over 5,000 people die in this province of illicit drug toxicity in the last five and a half years. And that is just a staggering number. Uh, it's almost incomprehensible.
Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, we will leave it there for today. Uh, Lisa Lapointe, thank you so much for your time and for joining us uh, to talk and go through these numbers. Well, thank you so much for drawing attention to these numbers. It's, it's important um, that everybody's aware of what's going on. We were talking with BC's chief coroner earlier in the program about the numbers released today. In June of this year, 175 suspected illicit drug toxicity deaths. That's overdose deaths, the highest number ever recorded in one single month. That surpasses what we recorded in May. 80% of those who die of drug overdoses are men, and 68% of those dying this year are in the age group of 19 to 49. So we thought it would be timely to chat with Brian McDonald. He reached out to the program yesterday. He is a filmmaker, but also a recovering opioid addict and wanted to share his story. Brian, thank you so much for reaching out to us. Uh, You're very welcome, Jill, and it's a pleasure to be on your show. As somebody who is a recovering opioid addict, and I think you've been 18 years without using drugs, how do you respond when you hear the numbers that in the month of June alone, 175 people died? Not surprising. Um, You know, when it comes to uh, what addiction ultimately is about, addiction is about isolation and disconnection, and what is covid uh, you know, brought us isolation, disconnect. And uh, so in, in this era, uh, if you're inclined to be an addict or in active addiction, uh, all that stuff is just going to amplify. And uh, so it is not surprising, 175 deaths. It's very unfortunate, and I really feel for the families of uh, of the deceased. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it's a tough one. Yeah, there's no question. How did you become addicted? Um. Geez, how many days do you have here? But uh, uh, the bottom line was I was suffering from uh, traumatic experiences that I uh, subconsciously knew about, but consciously had no concept about. Uh, I was feeling very off-center, and in my uh, early 30s, um, you know, I looked at my house, I had a wife, a child, uh, and it was just flatlined, gray. Everything was gray. There was no joy. There was no illumination in life. There was nothing that that was turning my crank to move forward. And uh, so from there, into a deep depression. And uh, then one day I made a conscious decision. It was a conscious decision. And uh, and I know that there's detractors in regards to addicts. You know, you deserve what you get type of thing. But I made some bad choices. And uh, within a very short period of time, I became addicted uh, to heroin. And uh, within three years, was uh, hanging out in the downtown east side from, um, you know, a, a nice house in the hills to the downtown east side within three years. And that's where it brings you. And people will hear that, uh, I would imagine, and and be surprised that it can happen so quickly and you can go from that place to such a different place. So how did you how did you break that cycle? Um, My God, that uh, began using in earnest around 1993. I got clean in 2002. I ended up in a total of uh, nine rehab centers, uh, get engaged with legal troubles, uh, which is part of the drill. Um, your intention, you have good intentions, but you just don't have any in your toolbox to, to be able to pull yourself uh, out. Uh, the rehab centers that I went to were <clears throat> not uh, very well equipped to deal with uh, 
really what 95% of addicts are all about. Uh, they have underlying traumatic experiences to one extent or another. And, uh, and I never even knew this until I got to my very last rehab in 2002 that uh, took me, it, it was an eight-week inpatient program. And by week six, I was realizing that, uh, that my traumatic uh, incidents in my life were physical and uh, verbal abuse by a family member, my father, and specifically left the family when I was five. But uh, I was sexually abused uh, numerous times uh, by the time I was 11. And uh, you tuck that stuff so deep inside, uh, it does uh, sit in the background, and eventually it has to come out sometime. And that was the day in which I uh, can correlate to that depression that began in earnest and uh, uh, drug use shortly thereafter. And for about three months, I felt that uh, the drug, uh, heroin at the time, was uh, it was my medication. It made all that stuff small. It made my, I felt included in society. I didn't feel so detached or disconnected. And uh, but that lasts a very short period of time. And after three months, it was just seeking, getting, using that whole cycle that went for, you know, pretty well nine years straight and uh, living in the, uh, you know, most horrendous conditions and uh, hanging out with, uh, uh, I call it the most honest place in Canada, which is the downtown east side. Uh, why I say that is because it's real. What you see is real. It's people suffering. And, uh, you know, I was one of those people. And uh, I did uh, create a film that's uh, done uh, uh, that has appeared in film festivals, and I uh, recut that thing here over the last uh, few months during COVID, ironically, that uh, is all about my story and uh, uh, through my eyes and uh, and through the eyes of five people that were close to me, being my former wife, my mother, and three others. And uh, uh, that uh, film really does uh, illustrate uh, very clearly as to uh, how they saw me go down, the hurts and the confusion and the chaos that you bring to the table. Uh, it was horrible, and uh, but uh, by the time I, uh, I was in my second to last week in rehab, it uh, was something that uh, became very apparent that uh, I was traumatized as a very young child, and uh, I had to do something about it. I have to forgive the people and my perpetrators that uh, ended up, uh, uh, you know, causing this situation for me and my family. Uh, do you think if more treatment, we focus a lot on harm reduction, do you think if more mm-hmm. treatment was made available, more people would be able to do what you did and get away from that lifestyle? Absolutely. I was privileged in a way that it was a pay-for treatment uh, in 2002, and it was uh, quite expensive. My mother actually got the money together to put me through. Most people are in that situation. The previous eight rehabs were public, and uh, that's where there, you know, there's a lot of uh, problems within a lot of those institutions. And uh, uh, But yes, there, there has to be a redevelopment uh, from the ground up in regards to what treatment is about and what you treat. You know, uh, drug addiction is only a symptom of uh, what's going on inside the individual. And uh, it's a tough, tough nut to crack. And a lot of people who are in addiction go, I got a good life. But (laughs) the bottom line is there's something there that's pushing them into this destructive behavior. And uh, I had the uh, uh, privilege of talking to Dr. Gabor Mate for one of my uh, documentaries. And uh, he, uh, you know... uh, talks a lot about trauma and uh you know trauma is 
in so many ways, uh, you know, converts into addiction for 95 plus percent of who you see on the downtown east side. That has to be taken care of. That has to be recognized. All right. Uh, just before I let you go, I know a lot of people will be inspired by this, probably want to, to learn more. Is there a website or somewhere people can go and look at the film or learn more about you? Yeah, I can send a link out to uh, people. It's still in a distribution deal scenario. So uh, v12numeric12films.com and through contact, you can contact me. I'd be very more than happy to uh, uh, help out people who want to see this film and see how, you know, the whole resolution from why to how one gets into recovery and everything else in between. I would be more than happy to send that link out to v12films.com. All right. Well, Brian, thanks so much for reaching out to us, and thanks for coming on the program today. I really appreciate it. Very good. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. Well, we were talking about this study yesterday using blood tests. It has found that more people in B.C. carry the novel coronavirus than developed COVID-19, and that was what we were talking about with Jason Tetro yesterday. Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry says the joint study, it was done by researchers at the B.C. Centre for Disease Control and UBC, shows broad testing of asymptomatic patients probably isn't all that useful. She also says the study suggests targeted testing of high-risk groups, such as long-term care residents, staff, and certain ethnic or economically vulnerable groups is key to responding to the expected second wave of COVID-19. Well, let's bring in Prabhat Jha, Director of the Centre for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be joining. What do you take from these numbers? A lot of British Columbians are patting themselves on the back saying what we did worked to to keep the spread of this virus down. What is your take on these numbers? Well, I think it is a well done study, but it's also a small one. So having only 20 people test positive out of over 1,700 tests uh, tested means you really can't make too much out of the data. It's just the numbers are too small. But what it does suggest is that if the BC prevalence was quite low, around 1%, that is certainly lower than what's been reported in other zero surveys, for example, in Spain and, uh, and in other settings. And we're in the midst of doing a national study, which is surveying 10,000 Canadians and which will provide regional estimates of how many Canadians were infected in the first wave. So I would look to not just one study, but other studies to give some guidance. Notwithstanding that, it's obvious that the uh, BC leadership and Dr. Bonnie Henry's team has done a really superb job of identifying the potential hotspots, making sure that the nursing homes are as protected as possible. Uh, But uh, just one small study with small numbers isn't going to be sufficient to say, well, we've got the uh, epidemic really understood. Right. And and I think that's one of the concerns that people will take these study results and take them as such a positive that we've done our job, uh, wash our hands of it and move on. Uh, Will the study then sampling as many as 10,000 Canadians, how much more of a picture or how much does that kind of make the picture more clear? Well, that uh, national study, which is called the ABC study, uh, has a benefit that it's taking a random sample of Canadians. Now, these are people who uh, in the BC study, went over to hospitals for you know getting your cholesterol checked, and that could either be either lots of healthy people uh, who are taking precautions against COVID, so they're kind of not representative of the overall population, or it could include some sick people. So it, it's hard to say because of the the study design. 
Our national study is taking a random snapshot, so we're working with Angus Reid Forum to get a uh, snapshot of 15,000 Canadians who've already uh, agreed to an online poll, and then 10,000 agreed to do a home blood collection. So we've sent the kits out to them, and uh, so far we've got about 2,700 back. So I'm optimistic that that'll give a nice snapshot of what is the prevalence. And importantly, we're asking, uh, I think, still at a time where we can get some sense of the peak of the epidemic. The epidemic probably peaked in most parts of the country in something like uh, April, uh, um, perhaps early April. And so your body's antibody responses take a month or so to, to get up so you can measure them. And hopefully if they stick around, which is one of the questions we're assessing, then the fact that we're testing in June means we'll have a a good snapshot of what happened in the first wave. And that's essential to be able to planning the second wave. If there is going to be a second wave, what age groups are most vulnerable? What do we do to protect our seniors? So you need these kind of studies precisely to help you with those kind of questions. It's an interesting one. So because it captured the the presence of the antibodies before the first wave or or before that peak in April, there could be people, because the number I think that people are are latching on to is it's saying that the number of people with antibodies to the virus is more than eight times higher than those who developed the disease. But that might not be the actual case. In fact, it might be greater. Uh, one of my uh, gentle criticisms of the study is that did, they didn't look at the peak. They looked early on, in fact, before people might have even uh, got antibodies going. And they looked late where there were all sorts of precautions being taken. So what would have been interesting is what was the prevalence at the peak you know, around uh, March or April. And I'm hoping that the team will do a follow-up report and test the samples that were uh, were available in uh, at that time period. And surely it's going to be higher. And notwithstanding that, I think there's enough data from the rest of things that uh, BC and Canada collect to know that BC has done quite a good job. Um, But we need better studies to be able to understand what's happening and whether there is going to be protection of all those exposed to a second wave if it comes So that's why national studies like ours and others that are being planned are necessary. Right. So so if we, I mean, there's the possibility, like you said, that it could be more. So if we find out that it's actually 10 times the people um, have the antibodies that didn't develop the disease or or more than that, then it does tend to point that the actions taken by BC were the right ones. It does. And uh, that rough ratio that for every one tested, there might be 10 that were untested. This is by the nasal swab test, the PCR test that I'm speaking of. That tells you not whether you've been infected in the past, but whether you're currently infected. And a variety of studies have found that at least it's tenfold higher number of actual infected than those that underwent testing. And uh, it does suggest that when you're measuring, like you do in the testing population, you're only looking at the tip of the uh, iceberg And so this is where the serology studies come in to be able to tell you how big was the number of people infected. And that in turn will help um, do some very sensible planning about which populations need to be protected, particularly the elderly, if there is a second wave. And we only have about a minute left, but is it possible that it's, if the peak was in April, we're testing now in July, if we, is it possible we will miss people that actually had the antibodies and perhaps they've worn off? 
That is a risk, and that's in part why we went ahead with the ABC study as quickly as we could. I mean, even without funding, we thought it was a national priority, and we went ahead because you want information on the first wave to be able to guide responses to any second wave. Now, there are studies being planned to look at the second wave, which are welcome, but you can't miss the first wave. That's going to be, in some sense, the most informative piece of information uh, for epidemiologists, certainly. All right. We will leave it there. Prabhat Jha, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us to talk about this. You're welcome.